Uh, welcome everybody to a, a, a new edition of the Art Business Podcast. Uh, I think there's been a little bit of a delay on this uh, new podcast of several weeks. That's because I was on vacation. But here we are back with a very, with, I, I sometimes say this, but it, uh, this really is a very special guest as far as I'm concerned on a personal level. Uh, Steve Sabella is a, a, an alumnus of um, the MA Art Business Programme that I'm Programme Director for at Southern Institute of Art in London. Um, and um, Steve is a, is a practicing artist. He was born in Jerusalem in 1975 uh, and has lived in Berlin, practice, continuing to practice uh, his art since 2010. Uh, Steve has, um, has, has achieved various uh, awards in the art world that we might talk about later, or certainly I'll put the links on the podcast page. His art um, has been um, is, is in various uh, important collections all across the world, including the British Museum in London, uh, the Arab Museum of Modern Art in Doha, in Qatar, and the Arab World Institute Paris. And there are other institutions and private collections that his work is in. And Steve tells me that he's currently got five exhibitions on, including one at the Venice Architectural Biennale, which I, I'm going to just ask him to say some words about before we we, we talk about some of his some of his favourite art and so on, and, and and then get to talk about his book. I'm just going to ask Steve, because I know that my current students are about to visit the Architectural Biennale. So Steve, can you talk about your your work in, in the Biennale? Yes. Uh, um, hi, David. Nice to hi. talk to you again. Yeah, very uh, good to talk to you. You were my professor at school, <laughs> just to remind everyone. <laughs> yes, I, I have five exhibitions, including Venice, the Architecture Biennial uh, Exhibition Time, Space, Existence. And I'm showing the Great March of Return, which is basically uh, a collage I did of 1, 000, over 1,000 photos of photos I took from five journalists from Gaza the, uh, when they documented the demonstrations or the the right of return at the border for almost two years. And these photos for me looked biblical, you know, almost like Renaissance art. And when I collaged them together, they looked almost like Renaissance art. And now it's being exhibited at this uh, exhibition there. And they are, on, they are on a round circle, two meters diameter on a motor and it's rotating. So it almost looks like a spaceship, like the time factor, just to mirror, you know, how much Palestinians have been living other occupation since uh, the since a long time. And I have another show in uh, Turin and in Reggio Emilia called Masters of Photography from the collection of Arts AP Museum, which is, they also have my art. And one in Morocco, Rabat, in the uh, Modern and Contemporary Art Museum. And yesterday I opened one in Paris at the Institut du Monde Arabe uh, mm -hmm. as well. So I'm quite busy with shows. <laughs> where, where, is the, where is the exhibition in Torino? In Torino, it's at Metro Quadro Gallery. It's a gallery I've been working with uh, since 2008. I met the owner on the plane. And back then I had a big show while I was doing my first master's. And I exhibited my finished work in April where I had, where it was due in July. I was just, uh, I was just ready for the, for the, for the work. And on, on the plane, two old people asked me, what have you been doing in Torino? I said, I've been exhibiting at Palazzo Piozzo. And then the galleries behind me said, did you say Palazzo Piozzo? I said, yes, <laughs> it's next to my house. And it just happened that he was opening a gallery that uh, winter and he asked me if I would like to be in the first show. And since then a very special uh, relationship developed me between me and the gallerist, Metro Padro, Marco Sasson. And up to this day, I like to exhibit with him because we met in the air and we remained in the sky. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. 
Actually, I, I, you've probably got other stories about who you meet when you're traveling. I, I've certainly had some 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 events like that. Um, but um, in in um, I can't remember when you were when you were on the MA Art Business in London. Where, did we visit Torino? Because we have been visiting Artissima, the art fair. Did we go there with you? Absolutely, yes. I remember. Yeah. So um, you you you'd been introduced to the Torino at that point, but maybe you'd been before. Yeah, maybe it was a bit. Uh, it was the year before when I've been to Torino for the first time, mm. and then probably I've been to Italy over thirty times. I actually, to my record, there are almost twenty-four exhibitions in Italy from that point. Wow, that's incredible. Um, do you do you have any exhibitions outside of Europe, like in the United States, North America? Yes, really? I was uh, invited to be like one of the main artists for the first biennial of contemporary Arab photography in Houston, organized mm -hmm. by Photofest. Mm -hmm. uh, that exhibition also toured uh, to the Middle East. And I also, I remember, had in 2009 a show in Manhattan at uh, Nicholas Robertson Gallery, back then, but mm -hmm. they closed doors after a few years. Yes. And Chicago, and I had a few exhibitions rotating uh, back then. I mainly exhibit in Europe and the Middle East, I have to say, uh, a lot yep. in the Middle East. Uh, what, about, what about the Southern Hemisphere, like Latin America, um, Southeast Asia, perhaps? Yeah, I've had uh, uh, several contacts. Uh, I'm I'm working on it to expand uh, to to to, to those regions over time. Excellent. At the moment, yes, I'm more uh, on the Middle East and Europe. Excellent. Great. Um, and 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 Steve, I think you've got a slight. I, I, as listeners, um, regular listeners will know, I start with this rather embarrassing questions about what's your favorite city, what's your favorite rural location. Steve is going to do this through art. So over to you, Steve. Yes, go ahead. What's your first question? <laughs> oh, um, your favorite favorite urban location and any yes. reason? For it? Okay, urban. I, I live in Berlin, and you know I'm, I'm mesmerized by Berlin for different reasons. It has like great places where people chill, like you have never seen before. And one of them is this lake called Plötzensee. It's actually you can walk from the center of Berlin to this lake, like half an hour, and suddenly you discover this magic. And those who are now uh, seeing the screen, they oh, can wow. see what I'm doing. So it's a collage of hundreds of images of this lake. But when you look at it, it feels like one space. I mean, it's hard to describe with words, and that's why I use images. But maybe David can say a few things about it. It looks like almost like Greek mythology, taking us back in time. When Absolutely. Yeah, when I've shown this work in Italy, they reviewed it as from Bosch to the Bible, you know, they called it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's lots of there's lots of Greek myths, as you know, about about pools and the spirits in water pools, like Hylas and the nymphs, this picture reminds okay. me of, where Absolutely. the nymphs inviting him into the water. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no. And the rural, I have to say, the volcanic landscape of Mount Etna is one of my favorite places. So ah. I also did the collage of this... Uh, landscape and both works are part of a series called On Earth. So this is a collage of Mount Etna. And if you look carefully, you will see uh, like small people in the landscape. Oh like yeah. Here in the very middle, you see a small girl going uphill. So it reminds you a little bit of Jeff Wall artworks, but uh, with a twist. Uh, these yep. are, yeah, it's like a dream artwork. If you look, it feels like a dream. Uh, it's fantastic, it. and it and and like yeah. a lot of your art, Steve. What one of the reasons I really like it is because it, okay. it it has this ambiguity between it looks like like traditional oil strokes, oil brush strokes, quite abstract when you get up close, and yet it's all done through the medium of photography. Yeah, I often say I use my camera like a brush. You know, I wish I my hands were able to use brushes and paint, but uh, 
The truth is I can't. So I, I learned how to use my camera like a brush and bend images, take the color or extract it from images and to create a new reality. Often, I have to say maybe a short story. I had a collector once had my work and after three years, I visited the collector and she tells me what a lovely painting you have. I said, that's photography. I said, are you kidding me? I thought for three years that was a painting. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, that's and, how and, and and that's interesting, isn't it? Because because um, you will know this, Steve, as well as I do. That I would say only only in the new millennium have we started to see artists using photography as a medium because of technological revolutions and uh, the, the the increasing high resolution that you can create. They've been challenging people like Andreas Gursky. They've been challenging. Okay painters which a lot of the students listen to this are not of that age group you know they're only just being born then but i think you'll agree with me that there's Absolutely. been a big revolution in in artists who use photography i remember like 23 years ago when the cameras were like 3.5 megabytes you know <laughs> we were like celebrating you know and today iphone is like 49 million pixel and the Hasselblad is like 100 million pixel and i think it's still gonna go on and on and for me, as an artist who also uses digital photography, that's absolutely great. It allows me to dig deeper into details and extract what I want without suffering uh, image uh, resolution. Okay. Yes, and pre presumably you can also do do other things that you can do um, with digital media, which you can mix them up in ways that are quite difficult with analog, traditional analog methods. Yeah, but you see also, as I see the world going so much digital, I, I, I do see also a return to analog, where, because now we, we are lost into a world of images where everyone is becoming a photographer, but not everyone is a photo artist. Absolutely. I mean, like, right? One of your questions, maybe you asked me what advice you want to give to photo artists. I, I would say focus on developing your language as a photo artist, not on creating single images. Now, everyone's an expert in creating one Instagram great shot, but not everyone knows how to put many images together to create a language. And this actually will differentiate between artists and just image makers of single images, you know, here and there. That's a great, I, I love that definition. I'm always very careful and I always warn my students off saying, this is a photographic artist. I, I say, no, you mean an artist who happens to use photography as their medium. Absolutely. And that's how I define myself. I don't like uh, the term like I'm a photographer because I don't see myself accordingly, even though like I did it professionally from 1997 till 2007, where I worked as a professional photographer for UNICEF, UNDP, UNRWA, OCHA, Save the Children, and what not. But back then, you know, I, uh, I started early on in my, uh, when, when I started, there was one famous photographer in the country in Palestine, maybe one. His name was Garo. But Garo never knew what hit him when I entered the market. I <laughs> entered with it, yeah, because I entered with a new portfolio when I just finished my first uh, degree in art photography. And the portfolio looked really good. It focused on life. And uh, technically, it was very fine. I remember telling my partner back then, which who was the subject of my first book, The Love Story, I tell her, now let's see, once we I show my work, how long is it going to take till I get my first assignment? And mm -hmm. guess what, David? It took a few days to get the first assignment. And in six months, I was branded as the youngest and most professional photographer around. So I did it for 10 years. And most of the images from the United Nations had like my name on them. Even though New York complained once to the UN agencies in Palestine, Israel, why every image that comes out of Palestine, Israel has a Steve Sabella name on it. 
And their answer was simply, he was the best. He's the best around. But you see, I got, uh, even though I was so established as a professional photographer, it was always art, my passion. So I had to leave this career, leave it behind, and, uh, and, and uh, went to live in London to seek my first master's and in, so that I can only focus on my art rather than my professional photography. So, I, so even by, though I did, yeah. Sorry, by professional photography and the work you did for UNICEF in Palestinian territory, I think between 98 and 2007, it was kind of what we would call photojournalism rather than what we would call primarily art. I would call it art photography because they hired me as an artist to do artistic photographs for ah, their magazines. Yeah, so a, little bit, like, yeah a little bit. Yeah, a little bit like... Photos. Sorry, a little bit like a war artist. Uh, a little bit, yeah. It's my style. Artist. Yeah. It, uh, it was always my style. They asked me like to do an assignment and I did it my way. Otherwise, yeah. I would not have done it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, there was a price to that. I got kidnapped, you know, in Gaza, you know. At oh, goodness. Point. Well, that doesn't <laughs> surprise me. You hear these stories all the time. Um, um, Steve, just coming back to some so, so that the 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 um listeners can can know a little bit more about your your aesthetic interests. Do you do you have a favorite building anywhere? Um like piece of architecture or architect? Uh, you know, growing uh, in the old city of Jerusalem, um I'm fascinated with walls, but not the separation wall, with old <laughs> city walls. There's something magical about how they contain society and how there is a life behind these walls. Yes. I, you know, and I think Jerusalem is one of those uh, few uh, cities in the world where behind its world is so vibrant, there is life going on. Where in some areas, like let's say in France, Carcassonne or Narbonne, I can't remember, they have a wall, but it's very touristic, okay? But yes. in the old city, you have, so, so many writers came to, to, to life, artists, musicians, uh, thinkers, I don't know, many, many things. And I love, uh, I love the, the old touch, you know, it's uh, probably 600 years old, the, the world in Jerusalem, I think, 600, if I'm not mistaken, five to 600. And uh, yeah, on the other hand, you know, I also like new architecture, you know, I'm not like only stuck in the past. Sure, sure. I like futuristic buildings too. So maybe the work also of Zohar Hadid, uh, this spacey outlook of buildings also inspires me. So I want to live in, I don't want to live in between. It's either here or there. So go find a place for me to live. I don't know. <laughs> I remember actually talking about Zaha Hadid. A, she, for the students listening, she studied at the Architectural Association, which is next to Suburbs Institute of Art in Bedford right. Square. And and also there was one year when we, um, we what did we do? We, um, uh, we used to take our students to Chatsworth where there was a Sotheby's um, sale of uh, modern contemporary art and her her prize-winning pavilion, Zaha Hadid's prize-winning pavilion that had been at Serpentine one year, you know, there's a prize for a, 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 a pavilion at the Serpentine for every summer for people to meet and have coffee and discuss. Um, that was actually for sale, amazingly, and it was there on the green in front of Chatsworth Barot House. Um, so we did quite a lot of, we were quite interested in Zaha Hadid and you know, the students are going to the Architectural Biennale this year, and it can be quite difficult for us to rationalise that because they say, oh, we're doing art, not architecture. And AI remind them of people like Zaha Hadid, that there's a lot of great architects, artists who are working between both forms, like between photography and traditional art yeah. media, if you like. Um, and um, uh, so, so the, also the Biennale is considered by Venice um, as... You know, the Biennale isn't just art. It's just that we fetishize the art. They see the Biennale as art, dance, film, 
architecture yeah. and all being very very equal they hate it when you when people all come in for the art and then ignore the other forms so and many students who've been to the architectural biennale before they often come back saying actually this was far more avant-garde in terms of philosophical ideas and useful ideas for architecture for poor people in poor countries or countries with sanctions like Iran and so on you know they see the ideas the political ideas in architecture uh, are as as in the forefront as as in the art biennale well, I agree with you. All disciplines are interconnected. There is no way we can look arch at architecture without looking at the history of art itself, you know? And Absolutely. even architect or artist also has to look at architecture and urban design to get inspired. And I can't see myself just looking at visual art to be inspired. Actually, yeah. what inspires me is everything we see on planet Earth, you know? Yes. Like life itself, all its ingredients with all its forms is very inspiring. And I how can we... totally yeah. agree. And, and all, all of this... Um... I, 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 I suspect many of our listeners, because they're that kind of generation, late millennials, um, early Gen Z, mindfulness is a big thing there. And one of the things mindfulness does, of course, is to make you aware of every sound and everything that you see is important yeah. to you. So that's a really good development, that I think. Coming back to your, 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 what you said about walls, it reminds me, I every year I do a, I'm a guest lecturer talking about ancient Roman architecture. It's the Bartlett School of Architecture connected to University College London. And it's very good architectural school as well. And the first assignment that they give them when I'm speaking is talk about walls <laughs> as architect, you know, talk about the materials and what and what walls are there for. And, and apparently it elicits some amazingly imaginative responses. So we've, we kind of ignore walls a lot of the time. But walls, are, if you think about it, they can, as you could say, they can be divisive, like in dividing territory in Jerusalem. Uh, they can be and the Berlin Wall, which you will, <laughs> which is there yeah. in Berlin now. But they can also be incredible structures that have other kind of magical meanings or poetic meanings, you know. So it's, it's interesting that you choose walls. Yeah, but the old ones, the ones we construct for humanity, not the ones to divide people. Absolutely, absolutely. And then, and then, Steve, do you listen to any music when you're working, or do you, do, do you know? Do oh, it's funny that you say that. You know, <laughs> the work behind me. There you see, I can just show yes. you. Yes, you know? amazing. I listened to Jan uh, back then when I was, I, this was done when I was in London and I was listening to Jan Tiersen the, back then, the composer of the movie Emily. Okay. I listened to his one song in on loop 500, at least 500 times while working on this artwork. Now, listen to what happened. A musician came to, to my house in London and at first glance, she looks at this artwork and she says, when I look at this artwork, it feels like I'm listening to Jan Tiersen. I said, wow, how did you manage to retranslate my visual notation, which was inspired by listening to the music, again back into audio? And then I asked her, which song do you think, do you think I did? And she said, I think it was the piano song, number five. And she was spot on. Yes, wow. David, when I do art, I'm fanatic about listening to music. Like uh, now I'm more into techno, living in Berlin, obviously. I switched to techno, so I cannot create art without listening to music. And I put it on trance, like, and I like to repeat the song sometimes, hundreds of times till my brain dissolves. And this, this, this way when I create, I'm floating. So, uh, and the writer of my monograph, uh, uh, Professor Robertus von Amelungsen from the Academy of Arts in Germany, Actually, he puts his thesis from the beginning. I want to prove to you that Sabella's art has music notations in it. And he explains like from the beginning why and how and all these things, contrapoint and all this. Things I don't understand. I just do them by intuition 
mm. know by working. But he had a theory for it from the beginning that my work is also musical, or yep. not only painting. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's 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 amazing. So so music is very is obviously very important to you, but it's the way you use it that inter that is different. You know, some people just say, "Oh, I usually have like Debussy piano music in the background because it's relaxing and gentle and beautiful," and then you know, and then I get on with my own work. But it sounds as though it becomes part of your process of working. Absolutely, and it changed over the years. You know, like in the eighties, seventies, I was listening to different things. Uh, now I'm focused on uh, techno, and it inspires me very much. You can see it as abstract art techno because it has like no form; it's floating in any direction, and I, I like that it's not fixed. You know, that's why I can create freely with it. And uh, do you have any kind of playlists on any platforms like Spotify, or aren't you a member of yes, Spotify? Absolutely, like on Spotify. So do you have a, Do you have a playlist that you could give a link for? I, I could, but it's like actually mix this playlist because when I like a song, it could be like 50 songs are techno, then a little bit soft and then a little bit hard. It depends on the mood, you know, on the style. Yep. I mean, I can share maybe with you like a few songs. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. some of the listeners would. I know that they're always, they've always got their, their um, what are they yeah. called, AirPods in their ears. So, um, you know. And I go clubbing a lot in Berlin. As you know, we live in the city of all cities when it comes to clubbing. It's for the listeners, you know, very kind. It's my temple every Sunday, so yeah. I get very inspired. Yeah, that's great. That's a really, really good thing to do. I don't think we don't, uh, you know, the mindfulness thing we've talked about as being very healing, um, and and I don't think we dance enough these days. You know, <laughs> somebody nicknamed me once the dancer of life, and I think I used it in my book. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve, turning now to kind of art, that strange word art. Um, do, can you recall the, uh, you know? at the time when you suddenly realized there was such a thing as art and you know because it's quite a difficult concept to explain to people I think I think if I think if aliens came down to our world and we said oh what they said what why do you what's this thing called art and we tried to explain to them it'd be quite difficult can you remember the moment when you became aware that there was such a thing as art yeah um let me start maybe when I was 12 my father was a camera collector he had like Zenit and uh, Konica and uh, many other cameras and I was playing with them, flirting with the cameras at young age and making photos. And from maybe 12 to 16, you know, I became very good at making uh, film images, you know, uh, photos. I didn't see it as art back then. I just saw them as good images. OK, maybe uh, when I graduated from school, uh, high school, I wanted I was looking for an art university in, uh, in Palestine. We had almost nothing. So I was looking into Israel and even there I didn't know much. So I landed on uh, Bitzel-El school, but of course they want a portfolio and they want you to speak Hebrew, which I didn't speak. So I learned Hebrew very quickly. Probably in two weeks, I broke the record of learning a language in two weeks. Wow. But then I started to make my portfolio. I would say my first touch to understand, you know, what is art making was making my portfolio for Bitzel-El, where I actually put like in the studio, my own studio lights together to create like the cosmos, like starry night, you know, through my uh, through my eyes and that was my portfolio i would say this was my first attempt to create something different to transform maybe art is to transform something into something else to give it a new identity a new look and this i felt was the art process uh, back then transformation you know yeah no absolutely as i understand it because our, uh, i i i spoke with you about this before we started the recording that um, we, we're actually partnering in a very small way with Beth Salel in Jerusalem, which for the listeners is a 
uh, a very important um, that they do a, a, an MFA in studio art. Steve, Steve told me that they rejected him, and yet now he's, as you can yeah. see, he's this very well-known artist. But that happens to a lot of, I think, great authors, artists. Uh, you know that kind of story. But um, I think it. We might talk about this later in connection with your Oops. books, with your new book, Steve. Um, David? Can you hear me, David? Yeah. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, you're back. I, yeah, it was interrupted. Now you're back. Yeah. Oh, no problem. No, I was just saying that 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 we're um, in the summer. In fact, we're going to give the opportunity. It's an option for our yeah. students who are art business students to work with um, with with usually emerging artists and help them with their understanding of the art market and the art world. And that is the main subject of Steve's book that we're going to come to in a moment, his new book. Um, but um, as I understand it, they now, I think they now teach in English rather when you applied, they were teaching in Hebrew. I think they both ways. They can do Hebrew or English and you can okay. submit in English your assignment. Oh, okay. if I'm not, yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, I think it's a, it's a very good school. Uh, it's very competitive. That it's maybe minus for some people. Like it's it's not intimate enough to interact with the students like one to one or with the teachers. Like teachers okay. are absent when you work in the dark room or not around you. So yeah. I went for my second option, which was the Jerusalem School of Photography in Musfara. Yes. And I remember like uh, at the interview, there were almost I think four or five panel people, and I entered that room, and my first thing telling them I said let's go on let's go on with it because I'm no I'm not going to be accepted let's just finish it you know so why do you think you won't be accepted I said come on let's be real you know I am a Palestinian from the other side and you're not going to accept me here I was the first Palestinian to be accepted at this school you know and funny enough they did accept me and I graduated with distinction and up to this day Avi Sabak the director of the school is very fond of me and uh, he talks uh, to people about my success story uh, you know that happened uh, later and i'm very happy actually i went to this school the difference between this one and bitzel is here is you have all the teachers around you all the time it's like a nice community or always interacting asking so you learn way more than in bitzel this is what actually several students leave bitzel to study at musrara because of this intimacy so the universe has no wrong answers it is what it is yes uh, yeah, it is what it is. I would have liked Betel because they have the degree, like the formal bachelor degree, where Musrara at that point was still a new school. It didn't offer it yet. And that's why I went uh, to do at SUNY to complete my bachelor degree in visual art so that I can do my first master's in London. Yeah, that's, is, that's for, for the listeners, that's SUNY in New York. Yes, I'm yeah, sure that, that I'm sure most of them know that, but but uh, yeah. yeah, it's the New York place. So so you then went to New York and then you came back over to London. I think you went to Westminster, the University yeah, of Westminster. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I had the Shivening Scholarship. I don't know if you you know Shivening Scholarship to do yeah. the first masters, but I already had in my mind to do two masters because mm -hmm. when I said I don't want to do professional photography any longer, I have to think how can I live for my art. So that's why the second masters had to be on something practical. I was thinking to do curating, but then I met uh, a good art, a friend of mine, he's a known artist, and he said, Steve, if you wanna do curating for your second masters, your energy will pour for others. Why don't you consider something more that can benefit you? Then I was thinking, what about this art business course at Sotheby's? He said, you know what? I think this is spot on, good for you. It will teach you the tools, how to live in your art and progress. And this is what I did. So I went uh, for the second master's, but as listeners know, Sotheby's is not cheap. 
<laughs> so when to come up, you know, but this is a huge tuition and living in London back then. So I took uh, a bank loan. I remember like 10,000 pounds. I said, oh, let me start with 10,000 pounds. I'll figure out the rest. I have no idea, David, I'm going to pay the tuition by December. I just want you to know. <laughs> but then I had a show in Paris. Funny enough that you say at the Institut de Modera, which today they are amongst the biggest collectors of my art. They have 20 artworks. So back then it was maybe my first show at the Institut de Modera. And there was a man, a lawyer, who never collected art in his life, who has never understood what art is about. But then I find out later that the five artworks he saw of mine, they were called In Exile, they touched him very much and they mirrored his reality and his life in front of him. So I went to a party to speak with somebody who, had to, who happened to be an Asian to tell her his story, how much he was touched. And she told him, let me find out who the artist is and see, maybe we can buy this work. He said, really, you can buy such work? She told him, absolutely. So the agent contacts me and guess what, David? December, when I was still doing the Master's Sotheby's, 30,000 pounds, I sold those, holes, those artworks and I paid the whole tuition of Sotheby's at once. I think I remember you telling me that story at the time yeah. saying I hadn't said this, but I was pretty destitute and suddenly and I my only my, one of my main memories of you, Steve, was um, was I used to organize this. Um, we all used to organize a carol Christmas carol service, like a Christian liturgy, if you like, with with, you know, the traditional. Um, but the students loved it. We used to go back to the Institute for wine and mince pies and sometimes mm -hmm. the family would be there and you brought your family. And do you remember we were listening to the carol service in the in the Hortsmoor Bloom Church uh, yes. uh, George's yeah, Bloomsbury exactly. beautiful, beautiful. Another beautiful building yeah <laughs> yes absolutely very very uh, super super nice times I, li I lived in the center of London actually uh, very close to the British Museum Russell Square yeah maybe some people know good enough college you know oh yes yes Yes, we, we did teach there for one year amazingly it wasn't a great place to teach it wasn't the room wasn't great but the but the place was nice yeah, well, they have nice rooms. Maybe they didn't give you the nice room, so uh, let's speak with them. <laughs> it's a postgraduate house, yeah, for uh, masters and PhD students, uh, and it's just very close to the British Museum. And this is where I lived uh, for almost two years till I moved to Angel. Great. So, 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 you know, we'll come to your book in a moment, which is all, of, which, which is in some ways connected with your experience of studying art business, you know, in yeah. London. Um, and um, but first, uh, I, I just wanted you to talk about uh, like a, perhaps a more controversial book, uh, which is your a kind of autobiography you wrote, you published in 2016 called The Parachute Paradox. And I, I did ask you what you if you could explain to listeners what you mean by parachute paradox. And I'm aware that this is this is a political response coming. But, uh, you know, I don't want to I, I think everybody should have their voice to so tell us about that book and its background and what you were writing about. Well, uh, there are facts in life. I was born in, Jerusalem's, uh, in Jerusalem under Israeli occupation, and there's nothing I can do about that, for this, uh, about this fact. So I felt I had a calling, you know, what it means to live under Israeli occupation and what it means to liberate the self from it. And I managed in 2013 to drip all Israeli occupation from my blood and feel uh, I'm living as a free man. So it feels like the hero's journey, like what... It, I, I calling like to tell the world to share my success story about how I liberated myself. So I called it the parachute paradox. Why? Once I was in a tandem jump uh, parachuting for in Haifa, and as you a tandem jump, you have somebody on your back to protect you, you know, to, to make sure that you land. I know, and this happened to be an Israeli. 
And this is the metaphor I want to give. Like, it feels like there is an Israeli on the back of every Palestinian. As you know, we don't have peace, and I doubt we will ever have peace. I, of course, I want that we have peace, but it feels that we don't. So my quest was how to unbuckle myself and do this jump from the air and land and survive. So that's the paradox. You are in the air, you should feel free, but actually you don't. You are controlled by ropes like a marionette. So that's my paradox. And how I managed to solve it, want to read the book and see how I found my way. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we'll put, we'll put, I'll give the details of the book, um, you know, in the, um, in the podcast text. And um, I, was, I was just thinking it kind of, you know, this is a, this is a more common, I think, philosophical occurrence than than you might think. I, I'm, I'm even thinking of someone like like Jesus Christ, the story of Jesus Christ, where he's basically trying to free himself and arguably a lot of other people from from the from the Jewish and and the Roman rule at the time, and he falls foul of both of them in the end. But you know, he manages, I think, to to to, to show that you can actually live in this nation and still yeah. speak out and be be a free a free agent to a certain extent. Well, the book received uh, recognition and it won two awards for best memoir. And Absolutely. Also read by Israelis and even a rabbi in New York uh, praised yep. the book very much for its search for understanding and uh, liberation in a, in a way that makes sense to everyone. You see, what can do and then accept tell our story? And I wanted to tell my story as honestly as possible. And nobody can come after you and say, hey, what are you writing about? Okay, I use the language of life, you know, I like to use words that speak about life, not about death. And this, I think this is what makes the book stand out, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I must confess that uh, I haven't read the book, but um, I've been sent your new book, which we're, we're going to talk about now. And, um, uh, and I'm so impressed by the new book, just on a very personal level. I'm not being biased here. I think it's amazing. And I think there's nothing like this that's been published yet. We're going to talk about it now, but I will also certainly hunt down your Parachute Paradox and, and read it. Um, so, so basically, uh, for those of you who are looking at the YouTube, this is Steve's new book. And you'll notice it's called The Artist's Curse, but look at the colouring of the word curse and you'll see it's actually really clever. It's like it's like a binary idea that there is a curse with the white S. If you take the S out, you've also got the cure. And and Steve's book is very much about that. By, you know, So basically, it, it, without giving too much away, because I want Steve to talk about this. Um, in fact, I'm going to ask you, Steve, you know, this is constructed around almost like reading a, a, a daily, a daily reading. Um, so um, there are other books like that. I've actually got a book on my bookshelf called Readings from Stoic Stoic Philosophy One Day a Year, where you read, you know, Marcus Aurelius's Meditations or uh, Zeno, the great, the ancient Greek Stoic or Cicero, people, the, the great Stoic philosophers. And you read a, a page a day. And this has been organized like that, giving an artist just a little bit of information each day to ponder upon. And it begins with a kind of quite negative thing about what it's like being an artist in the art world and the art market. But it always comes up with something positive, which is what I really love about it. It's not just a kind of nasty, critical. I've met so many artists who just get very bitter about the art world and the art market but you you try and find a cure for that so can i over to you now if you want to speak more about this new publication yeah i mean there's a lot to talk about the book uh, and, and, yeah. and steve if you want to read from it i'd really like you to, to 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 pick some pages to to help illustrate what you're saying sorry to interrupt no you're not interrupting there is a lot to speak about this book and as you said the title is the artist curse and it could be the artist cure and even me it took me time to see the cure in the curse 
But let me just start saying why I created this book. I think back in 2016 or something like that, I was making a lot of uh, good income, you know, from art. Like the sales were like in going very well. And living in Germany, and my accountant miscalculated my income tax, even though I was paying tens of thousands every year for several years. But since he filed once every three years, suddenly I got a massive bill by income tax in Germany that you need to pay this in two weeks. Are oh, you goodness. kidding me? Like, what are you going to bring now this like huge, I don't know, I can remember 50,000 euro like in, in, uh, in two weeks. And this is when I went for a GoFundMe campaign, right? And for the GoFundMe campaign in six months, uh, lucky me, it brought 96,000 euro. But for, for it to succeed, I started writing every day a curse, you know, to attract people, you know, to, you know, to support my campaign. And this, I, I remember writing at least 250 curses at the time. And it actually succeeded in bringing me the 96,000 euro of the time. But I didn't finish the book because it's like, you know, it also has its own story to tell. It took me five years to finish the book and I now finished it. And as you said, there is always a way out. I cannot just look at the answer is always right there in front of us. The question is, why don't we see it? And what tools are we learning how to get better at what we do? whether in art or in business, in art market, things happen. But what are the things I want to do now to go forward in life? So I, I wanted to be focused and to the point. I want I know all these books about the artist way, the artist uh, life, all these things, but they are full of clutter. I want the text that's straight to the point, design that works. So I also designed the book myself, and I wanted to, to create parallels between the pages left and right. Sometimes it's funny, you know, what you if you look at the left and the right side. Uh, maybe let me just try it. Uh, yeah, absolutely, like something like that. Okay, maybe like Curse Thirty Seven. And I remember Sotheby's going to Tate uh, to Tate to see the archive, the thousands, the hundreds of thousands of artworks in Tate archives. So Curse Thirty Seven is called the Art Cemetery. I was once on tour to view the archive of tens of thousands of artworks in Tate Modern's Museum Collection in London. I remember the endless rows and stacks of artworks shelved up to the ceiling in all shapes and forms. The smell of paint, varnish, fabric, earth, elephant dung, and other chemical chemicals still lingers in my nose and upsets my stomach. When I asked how often do these artworks see the light of day, the cemetery warden answered, almost never. At that point, I wondered why I was doing art and why many artists pushed to have their works buried in museums. This taught me to be at peace when collectors hang my art in living rooms. I mean, the cure for this curse, like, I'm happy actually, like the artwork you see behind me, that people can see it, it's alive, it sees the light. Guests can come and see it, but actually why artists are fighting to be in museums all the time? Yes, it's great for your CV. But actually, is it great for your art? So this made me appreciate, you know, people when they come and say they want to buy my work, and I would give them the priority compared not, not to the museum because art is meant to be seen, not meant to be buried. Okay, so or orchards, for example, twenty. Actually, just Steve, just to ref while you find the next page, just to reflect on something you've said there, I'll remind listeners that something. I mean, and this 
the last time I heard the statistic was about 10 years ago when I took some of our art business students down the old Kent Road to the Tate Repository, which is an amazing place to visit. And they told us that only 4% of the works that Tate owns are ever on display, including yes. being exhibited around the world. Yes. Um, so there's an awful lot that we never see anyway. And I, I just wanted to agree with Steve. I mean, I, I don't know whether I ever said to you, I tend to say to my students every year, I really don't like museums. There's something very, you know, I don't like that. I, I mean, I love some of the work in the museums if, if I can if I can filter out the fact as a museum. So when I'm in the National Gallery, I I've, I found myself actually crying in front of like a, a religious altarpiece thinking, I want to see that in its set, in its location, in a church in Florence. I don't want to see it on rather sterilised on the wall and often often mutilated by the art market. They often divide up all to pieces to smuggle them in smaller pieces and out of the country. And I just find museums pretty sterile, actually, places on the whole. Um, sometimes there's some wonderful curated exhibitions where I learn a lot, but I, I, it's a paradox, isn't it? Because if it's hanging on the wall as that one is behind you now, you have to be invited by Steve to come and look at the work. And that means it's not for public access. I get that argument, but I, I think there is also an argument for that private ownership of some of the works, so long as some of the works are also in public museums. Yeah, but don't forget people like, forget my work. Yeah, if you buy, let's say, my work or hang it, you will have guests coming to visit your house, even though they're limited, but still it, it's, it sees the eyes of people. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, anyway, and regarding the book, I also I always like to share knowledge. You know, my life is an open book. I can't see my life like given I'm an artist. My and my art is about my life. You know, so I, I've been I've been doing art since nineteen at least nineteen ninety four. So the you can see the art as the pages of my life. Now everything I learned I also like to share, and this book is about sharing my knowledge, the success, the failures. Even though there are no failures in life, everything that I've learned in the art market in the art world. And I say it with honesty and straightforward. And I've been getting like nice reviews lately by artists. And one of them yesterday, I don't know her artist from the UK, she sent me by Instagram that she loves the book so much. It shatters that uh, illusion that artists live with negativity. And this book is like fixes you to create art and feel good about it. So I like it when it influences people on, on this level. Anyway, you could you you can see this book see this book as a memoir, like my first book, because it starts with the curse number one. It's called Nature. Artists are born, and second one, Nurture. Artists are made, and so on. So the question is, if you are made or born, only history and time will tell. And if you go to the last curses of the book, you know, to give it like an ending, curse three six four, the resurrection. Artists can always be reborn. And we agree <laughs> I love on that. it. Yeah, and then the last curse, three, six, five, a new life, artists die. And this is where Sotheby's and the others come in because after they die, people start to look at the art again, Absolutely. you know, and give it a new value, a new valuation, a new look. In this book, you can see it and you can read one page, like every day, one curse, but I didn't intend it to be like that. But some people I do see, they are doing it like this. But actually, if you read it from the beginning to the end, like quickly on one go, like three hours, I think it affects you in a different way because then you realize, whoa, what's happening here? It's like taking you from one dimension to another. Some people say that I'm not consistent, let's say, with the feelings. I said, but what is consistent in life? Sometimes you feel high, sometimes you feel down. And if you are fixed about how you want to go forward every time in the same way, then you did not learn anything. That's why curses are sometimes different, even though they are about the same topic. But I, I learned 
how to look at them from different perspectives, from different angles. And this is what gave me, for example, a lot of ability to navigate the art world. And the art world is a maze. It has many closed doors. It doesn't matter what if you are a small artist or a medium artist or a big artist. You know, young artists, small problems. Medium artists, medium problems. Big artists, huge problems. We all have issues. You know, nobody you know, has it easy. You know, but I can see like many artists competing for, let's say, to reach that destination. What is that destination? You know, I ask myself. My destination at the end of the day is to make art. So is to free my time as much as possible to make art. Maybe Curse 100 actually summarizes the, 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 the I call it the Curse, Curse 100, which is the artist need to sell art to earn a living. Yeah, the artist need to sell art to make, to earn a living. And I wish it was, it were different that we don't have to sell our art, but that's the reality of it. So some people assume, why are you focusing on the art market? I said, yes, how can I not focus on the art market? As an artist, I need to survive. Can you guarantee to me a salary? I, sell, I tell my collectors, give me 10,000 euro a month, and they will not care about anything else. But who's going to give you the 10,000 euro? Nobody, right? Well, in, the, in the Renaissance, of course, artists were often lured away from Italy to work for like, like the Holy Roman Emperor. I'm thinking of yeah. uh, Tintoretto. And, and they, they, they offer them like a, a, a you know, food and accommodation in their palace and a kind of stipend. And I'm thinking, let's have a look at the work they created then. And often it is less creative. They dry up a bit because it's all coming too easy to them. Yeah. So so this book like gives you uh, ideas how even to earn money also like next to art so that you can also focus on your art, but mm -hmm. also gives you tools how to handle people, you know, stagnation, artists block if you have it, uh, uh, Things that you don't think about that you should care about in your uh, later uh, years when you bec become like more established. You know, we over we don't look at these things like uh, insurances, uh, shipments, all these small things. You know, that are very important for a successful artistic career. Yeah, we do more, by the way, on logistics now. We even started an MA in art logistics, which didn't get enough people because they said it was too niche. People wanted to do the yeah. broad business, but we now have logistics as an elective. Uh, so we, yeah. you know, quite a lot of our students go into logistics as 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 a as a job, but it's it's a headache, and and it's something that artists. Um, by the way, you said something there. It's something that artists shouldn't really need to have to spend time on, you know. But so you said something very interesting just now, to me anyway, about artist block. I mean, I've heard of writer's block where a writer, and I get this when I'm writing yeah. academic chapters. I just don't know what to write next, and it's called writer's block. What is artist block, Steve? Well, artist block is like when you, this is uh, one example. Some people complain, let's say, if I don't have a studio, I cannot create art. And in one of the courses I say, your studio is where you are, wherever you are. In the past, when people asked me, where is your studio? I said, you, are, you just stepped in. It could be like I'm talking to you in Dubai or New York or London because I am my studio. So nothing stops a creative artist. That's just how it goes. And if you wanna see the lack of not having a camera, or not having space to work, then you're gonna get the block, right? I remember once I created, and uh, I was in Croatia, and I was seeing something so mesmerizing in front of my eyes. I didn't have my equipment in me, on me. So I took my iPhone, I said, let me do it with my iPhone, and later I will resolve the technical aspects, okay? So, and I did it, and, and the opening night of, my, of this iPhone shots in Dubai,
now. Yeah, I remember uh, once I was on a, on a lake in Croatia and I was seeing something happening in front of my eyes, art at the moment, and I didn't have my professional gear on me. So I said, what shall I do? I said, I'm an image creator. It's either I will write poetry about it, you know, <laughs> to create images out of words, or I, will, I use my iPhone. And I told myself, I will later resolve all these technical aspects. And you know, these iPhone shots, David, were transformed into huge screens, projections from both sides, and exhibited in museums, okay? And when I made them as prints, I, I, in Dubai, at the opening night, we sold at $85,000 of these prints. I'm just saying that one should never complain about your gear. It's all about how you approach things in life. A creative artist will always find a way, a creative way. And that actually what inspires others to work with you, that you never stop. You never stop going forward, the thinking, reconfiguring, you know, re-looking re at things. I'm thinking like of I'm thinking of there's lots of examples, I think. Francis Bacon, one of my favorite painters, springs to mind, who spent all of his money wasted all his money on gambling and drinking. You know Is the story. Right? And then, then then he had to turn around canvases and he had to paint on the back without priming them. And that led yeah. to his amazing sort of uh, very, very um spontaneous painting style and throwing rags at the you know, it's a very physical yeah. Is that a page? May I ask you because, of course, your English is perfect and you have a great <laughs> voice, like mine. You know, my accent sucks. Honestly. No, it's fantastic. Why don't you? Why don't you read Curse Twenty Eight and Curse Twenty Nine because they mirror each other? Okay. Like, okay. So and Twenty Nine. Okay, Curse Twenty Eight. Never carry an umbrella. Going for a walk, you see something inspiring and think the visual and what it triggered will linger within you forever. It won't. Then, just as you lie down to sleep, another epiphany hovers above your head and you let it wait till the morning to write it down. Upon waking, it's gone. Take notes. All of your ideas, your feelings and inspirations are like clouds. They keep moving. And before you know it, they shower on someone else. Curse 29. And curse 29, let it rain. Sometimes you have no idea where your great inspirations come from. When in doubt, read Curse 28 and to never carry an umbrella. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah. I was just going to show. I was just going to show the um, anyone watching the YouTube who doesn't who you you must get the book. Obviously, notice how Steve used something that you you rarely see. I think in um, in like um, standard prose literature, you see it a lot in poetry where the font changes and the bold changes, so that he's like poetically emphasizing his points. It's funny. I I forgot to write the name of the font I used. This font comes. In different uh, shades or thickness or thinness and while looking i guess what the name of the font is which fits perfectly the theme of the book and what it wants to achieve it's called articulate, oh, articulate. <laughs> articulate. yes <laughs> it's art yeah. and it articulates extremely well my my point yeah is that a standard font that you can see on like microsoft word no no you can't no, there are other there are other word processors <laughs> yeah uh, I think I got okay. it from Adobe or, or something. Yeah, yeah, you can. I was lucky to find it very quickly. Yeah, yeah. That, that's good. But anyway, this book handles like on the middle. You asked like why the book uh, has its colophon in the middle rather than at the beginning or the end. Yeah, they just showing have... just showing any viewers. You can see there's a dark line down the middle of the of the book, and that is basically the index and the um the title page and dates and uh, and and so on. 
Yeah, and I'm happy that the, the Lul Art Foundation, which is also amongst the biggest collectors of my art, uh, uh, supported and financed the publication of this expensive uh, book. Uh, and I, I put it in the middle because I wanted like a story, the book. I didn't want, I wanted to start immediately like with the curse, like artists are bored, you know, like we go like Genesis, chapter one, you know. And I'm an artist, I like to do, to know the rules and I like to break them. As long as uh, we, I, I care about aesthetics. I mean, I'm an aesthetics freak, you know. Uh, I think art is, I mean, even though I, in my art, I have very hard topics I'm dealing with, but I like to do them in an aesthetic way. Like you can see barbed wire in my art, but or you only see it when you come close. From a distance, it looks like Van Gogh or something, like Starry Night. But when you come closer, what is this about, you know? And suddenly it hits you in a different way. So I like the eyes to be impressed first, and then the intellect second, you know? In the end, you're doing visual art, not mind art, you know? But I like the mind art at the secondary level, you know? Steve, when, when I do interviews, and I don't, don't know whether we use this technique when you were interviewed for the ML business, but I did one yesterday, for example, and I, I, I show an image, but before I show it to the student, to the prospective student, I say, look, this isn't a test. I don't want you to identify this or the artist. If you know, I want you to, I want you to not use your head anymore because art history or teaches you to lose your passion, I think, for art and to become too over-intellectualized. Obviously, if our students are going to go into the art market, they need to realize that a lot of people buying art are, are responding first with their heart, not their head. Yeah. Uh, so, so I get them to just talk about what they first see. And, and it's, you've just said the same thing, really, that you like people to respond, not to worry about anything intellectual or difficult in your work but to actually just respond aesthetically to immediately to what they see in front of them and but not just that with a flat work of art and I know your one in the architectural biennale is 3D but you do you know it's important to be able to also get up close and you often see a lot more and I think the artist often intends that yeah. you see more when you get close. You're going to share, share another page or yeah, yeah, I stopped the video. Uh, yeah, just just for people viewing YouTube, we've we switched. Steve switched his video off because the bandwidth is a little bit problematic at the moment. So we're just going to listen to him now. Yeah, um, just maybe I don't remember if we said to the listeners the book is called "The Artist Curse or Cure yeah. on Being an Artist, Navigating the Art Market and the Art World." Okay, and maybe thirty percent of the book focuses on navigating the self as an artist. It's never easy to live with a complex self you know i mean many people say artists are crazy so in my in my uh, i had to find ways how to deal with craziness i remember my first teacher in musrara in jerusalem he said steve you are crazy but in your craziness you are doing a great job <laughs> but in any case you know i also want to live at peace with myself so this book has at least maybe 30 percent on navigating the self on being an artist and I think that's important necessity to, to take care of ourselves because if we want to live long and healthy, we cannot just ignore that part in our career, you know? In, uh, on, but however, the book tackles like important themes, maybe like not dealt before, like on the art market, on uh, developing artistic and mental skills, on navigating the self, on patrons, collectors, and collecting art, on the value of art on imagination, on purpose and essence. And let me just say something about essence. Some people think that you have one purpose in life. I feel you need to have multiple purposes in life. How can one settle for one purpose? I can't see myself one purpose. I mean, there are, I, that, if you have money purposes, it becomes easier 
to achieve and fulfill some of them. If you have one and it doesn't work, you're gonna end up depressed. That's why I have many purposes in my life. Uh, art marketing is also interesting. Like how do you market your art, you know? Especially today with social media and what's happening. How do you go forward in this world where it becomes so much image oriented? Do you just sit on your chair and uh, let the art have a life of its own? It won't have a life of its own. It, oh, maybe they just rephrase. Once an artwork is born, it has a life of its own. But the world we live in today requires you to be in certain channels so that people can see the art. If people want to buy your art, rule number one, people have to see it. I know some artists who, who create art and they put it in the drawer. Like it's a great art, but I don't want anyone to see it. But then how do you want people to appreciate what you do? So now you need to think, where should I show my art? Is it online? Is it in a gallery space? Is it through reviews? Is it through uh, uh, talking with people? And so on. And uh, the last the themes in the book, it talks about uh, towards artistic freedom, how to become financially secure, you know, doing your, uh, your art, uh, how to deal with your ego. And uh, the best thing for me, I, uh, one of the curses says, take a pin and inflate it. That's the best uh, expression of ego for an artist. Even though we assume that artists must have ego like Picasso and all these things, but I feel in today's world, Humbleness is the best way to go. It gives you more opportunity to work with museums, curators, collectors would love you, you know, if you are humble, rather than the other way around. And the last part is on towards mastership. And there are like a few, a few curses or cures on that. And these require a practice of many years of practice, how to, to handle them. Maybe pick a number, uh, David, and uh, let's see. Pick a number, let's see where it goes from what? one. To so three six, okay, my, my birthday is 23, 23rd. Shall I have a look? Yeah, what, let's see what goes 23, right? Um, shall I read it? Uh, okay. Uh, when you work on it, this is back to square one. Yes. Uh, when you work on a new series, it's almost inevitable to be impressed by the power of the first two and then struggle to match their force as you continue working. This is because you start thinking of the process and technique instead of letting yourself flow like you were in the beginning. Only when you find the silence between your thoughts will you be able to immerse yourself in the colours of your canvas again. I love that. Yes, absolutely. This goes back like, to, the, to when I listen to music and uh, get lost into my own space to lose the self, to find the new self. So this is silencing, silencing the voices. Often when I, in the past, many series, like I'm so happy with the first two, and then I get lost for number three, four, and five. I get stuck for weeks and months, like, what's happening here? Why, why is it not working? And it has to do with I'm thinking too much. What I have to go back to intuition and work from the heart and the eye rather than from the mind. Oh, and um, there's another page, which is like the year of my birth, which is giving that away. By the way, my dog is now, viewers will be able to see my dog who's trying to get a treat, I think. Anyway, this is interesting. It's called Void and Matter. Some artists believe they can only work when surrounded by positive energy. Fortunately, time teaches us how to cultivate negative energy and transform it into art. See the life work of David Hockney and how his art mirrors his reality at all stages of his career. Between void and matter, between negative and positive, imagine infinite possibilities for your art. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, 
if you only think you can exhibit on Earth, soon we're gonna exhibit on Mars. It's like uh, <laughs> the space is infinite. Even like uh, virtual space today, all the space, people, if people complain, why I'm not showing in museums? Can I just tell to these artists, create your own space and impress the world with visuals created through your own uh, like virtual reality or augmented reality, whatever you wanna call it, you know, and impress everyone. Good art will reach the world. You just have just to be persistent and never give up. Never give up, even though when you think it's over, it's only actually the beginning of something else, something new. Yeah. Well, Steve, Steve Sabella, thank you very much for being the guest on today's podcast. Um, it, it's been fantastic talking to you as ever. And every time I talk to you, I get a, a flood of new ideas, which always leave me feeling good and positive myself. So thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, David. And, uh, always a pleasure to talk to you. And I hope to see you soon.